Well, has anyone here known anyone that is in law enforcement? Several of us have, haven't we? They've probably shared with you at one time or another about a challenge that they always face. That challenge is getting people to what? Confess. You probably experienced this in your home as well. You've been in the kitchen, you found that empty cookie jar, you followed the trail of crumbs, you happen upon a suspect who's a criminal. He's a criminal. Or maybe when Johnny has ice cream across his cheek and then you ask him, Johnny, did you get into the freezer and eat ice cream without permission? And he'll look at you, shake that head, mm-mm, mm-mm. Nobody likes to confess. Nobody wants to be, think that they're in the wrong or be told that they're in the wrong. And in law enforcement, this got more difficult or was complicated after 1966 when the Supreme Court made the reading of Miranda rights compulsory in our nation. Statistics show from that point forward, that the problem with criminals only got worse. The first thing they would hear, we know, you've watched the TV, you have the right to remain silent. So even criminals who've been caught in the act immediately do what? They clam up. They clam up. If I were to go back to this sermon again and rename it and title it, I usually do that early in the week so the bulletin and everything get printed, Uh, I might have named this, you do not have the right to remain silent. The root of our passage today is going to reveal to us why Christians practice confession and then what confession looks like. Um, The idea of confession makes a lot of Christians really nervous. You You mean I have to own up to this stuff? I have to confess it? Yes. You have to own up to your offenses. Because we're criminals. We've violated the laws of God. Well, in 1 John chapter 1, we're going to see there's going to be a lot of light shed on the reasons that most people refuse to confess. And that's going to provide reasons why those who walk in the light should be pleased to have an attitude of confession. Christians should desire to confess sins. And that's because, as children of God, as being members of His family, we have a loving Father who is ready and willing and able to forgive. He's anxious to forgive us. But before we begin, uh, keep in mind, I want you to remember from last week now, John has just finished explaining in the first four verses that the apostles had been close companions to the Lord Jesus. They had seen Him. They had heard Him. They had touched him. And we know from that study last week that Christ's church is built on the foundation of those apostles, those witnesses. Of course, Christ himself being the cornerstone of that foundation. And the Apostle John had just invited the readers of this letter to join the apostles in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. So turn your attention to 1 John chapter 1. And we're going to pick up in verse 5. There it says, this is the message that we, we meaning the apostles, 
have heard from him, him points to God, and announced to you, that means us, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Like last week, this passage asserts apostolic authority. These men had spent time with Jesus, a lot of it, and they had heard from him, and then if you remember, they were commissioned by him to announce a message. They are announcing a message to us today as we sit here and listen to God's word. So you tell me, looking at the text, what is their announcement? What is John's announcement here today? It is that God is light, and there is no darkness in Him at all. God is light. Light in the Bible represents holiness and moral purity. Light also signifies the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. So we need to realize God is light, He dwells in light, and most important today for our message is the Word of God sheds light. Listen to this, Psalm 119 verse 105. It tells us, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So God guides every believer by shedding light on our path. And of course we know there is no darkness in God at all, none, That means he'll never mislead us, he'll never forsake us, he'll never lead us astray. And Titus chapter 1 verse 2 reminds us God cannot lie. And then 1 John 3, 5 later on this book, it says, in him there is no sin. So God is pure, God is light. So why would you think that John would tell us that God is light and in him there is no darkness? He's trying to present a contrast, correct? He's wanting us to um, realize that there are, there's a diversion. There is a light and there is a darkness. He wants to magnify this. And in the next four verses, we're going to find here by listening to John that there are only two paths you can choose. You can choose a path to walk in the light or you can choose the path to walk in darkness. Now, in contrast to this, our culture tells us that, well, you know, there are many paths. And you can just choose whatever path you want. Because they all lead up a nice, gentle slope, a very scenic view to the top of God's mountain. And at the end of every path, of course, every path arrives at God's big ski resort in the sky. And we're all going to get to there together Everyone eventually gets there. Some paths are a little longer. They wind a little more. But we're all going to stand together looking over all the earth. That's what the culture says. That all sincere paths lead to God. It's what the culture says. It's what Satan says. It is not what God says, nor what the Bible teaches. Instead of many, many paths... Today we're going to see there are two paths, only two paths, and they do not lead to the same destination. The truth is that Christ himself is a fork in the road. He's a fork in the path, and in verses 6 and 7, John is going to contrast for us the two opposite paths. 
And then in verse 8 and 9, he's going to contrast two opposite behaviors or responses by people. And he does this so that you and I can make an informed decision on which path to walk. First, in our text, verse 6, there's a path of darkness. And it describes for us the people that are on this path. It says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, that meaning God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Notice what's stated first in this. This this is most interesting, a bit disturbing, about those who are on this path. Many people who are walking in darkness actually say that they have fellowship with God. Yeah. I'm good. I'm covered. Yeah, I got fellowship with God. I'm a Christian. You know, I went to Bible school. I I got confirmed. I've done this and I've done that. Yeah, I'm on the path. A number of you participated in our six-week evangelism training, and you recall how we would go out to parks and, and different public places and talk to people about Christ. And do you remember the percentage of people, Dan, you remember this, the percentage of people that said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I have fellowship with God. But upon further questioning, they couldn't tell you at all what the Bible said about that or how they ever came into fellowship with God. They couldn't tell you how they were a Christian. They said, for sure, yeah, yeah, I'm a member of a church. Which church? It's over there somewhere. Yeah, repeat it over and over again. And then there were others that we ran into that told us that they knew they had fellowship with God because they'd taken that position of many paths. Judge not lest ye be judged, they'd say. Everybody's saved. Except perhaps maybe axe murderers and and rapists. They'd say maybe they'd take a little longer to get there. But their mantra is, just be true to yourself and it's all going to work out. That's not what Jesus says. In Matthew 7, 13, a very familiar text, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate... For the gate is wide and the path is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the path is narrow, Jesus says, that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So in whatever way you want to interpret God's words here, there are many who go to destruction, few who are saved. But regardless... John says these people in this, in this verse walk in darkness, but they think that they have a connection with God. But they actually don't. Keep that phrase, walking in darkness, close to the back of your mind. Whatever we determine about walking in darkness and what that means in this context, we do know that it means those walking in it do not have fellowship with God. That's clear. They're not in the family of God. They're outside the sphere of redemption. And this text says, what about them? Look again. It says they're liars. It says they do not practice the truth. That that gives us another clue about them. They do not practice the truth. Where that phrase actually could be rendered, maybe one of your translations says this, they do not put the truth into practice. What is the truth here? You know, we all know John 17, 17, God's word is truth. We know that Jesus is the way and the truth, right? 
And we find Scripture repeatedly representing itself as God's truth over and over again, innumerable times, cover to cover. So would you agree with me, would you concede that this category of people probably don't practice what the Bible teaches? Reasonable? Though they've heard God's word, they don't practice God's word. They are hearers of the word, but not doers of the word, James would say. And what does he say about them? Something very similar. They delude themselves, right? They lie against the truth. They profess to have faith. They've, they've claimed to be saved. They even name the name of Christ, but their behavior does not align with the truth. So what John is inferring here is that there's lots of nom- nominal Christians out there who in their lives make little or no attempt to heed God's word. It says they walk in darkness. And you, you might remember from our introduction two weeks ago, the introduction to John is that we discovered that there were um, a lot of people that were infiltrating the church and identifying themselves as Christians. And John was looking to expose them in this letter. This is what he is doing. And so this text definitely applies to all unbelievers walking in darkness. They all walk in darkness if they're unbelievers. But it will help us to remember here as we look at this that John is actually describing people who are professing Christians. They claim to have fellowship with God. So let's keep exploring this path of darkness. And I'll have a skip verse 7. That applies to believers, and we will come back to that. But for now, go directly to verse 8, which continues to describe the attitude of these who are walking in darkness. John says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Does that help? Again, uh, John repeats here that they're liars. They're deceiving themselves. The truth is not in them. They don't practice the truth. There appear to be people who have infiltrated the church who make this declaration. I have no sin. Haven't sinned. And notice this phrase is written in the present tense. I have no sin. It's not that I didn't sin or I hadn't sinned. They say, I have no sin. And these people assert that they've reached a point in in their present day lives that they don't sin. Actually, they claim they have no sin at all. They're denying the sin nature still has any controlling influence over them. What does the verse say? It says they're deceived. They are deceived. So this exposes a false theology that you may have heard of. It's called Christian perfectionism. Um, It's not a very common belief system anymore. Uh, Most of us live in reality. Um, But the Christian perfectionists attempt to convince others that they've reached this superior plane of spirituality. Would that ever happen in a church? We've reached a superior plane of spirituality. We're higher than everyone else. In that case, within the church you have what you would, you would identify as the haves and the have-nots, right? John Wesley, uh, the, former, uh, the one who formed Methodism, if you remember it came out of his teaching, uh, proposed a superior state of sinless perfection was achievable. Now, John Wesley never said that he achieved this. 
he proposed theoretically that it was attainable. Um, the, that doctrine was later embraced by the holiness movement, which if you know or don't know, came actually kind of rooted out of uh, Methodism. So it, it's really no surprise that the holiness movement eventually morphed into the idea, the unbiblical idea now today, that there are people who have a spiritual level that is higher than others, and they do all kinds of miraculous signs. They're, spirit, they're more spiritual. Again, in that movement, you've got those who become identified as the haves, and you've got others that are the have-nots. Some are real spiritual. The rest of us, not so much. The fact is, for those who think they've reached a point where they're no longer affected by sin, John says they're deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I've cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? That's a rhetorical question that expects the answer, nobody. Anyone who thinks they're no longer susceptible to sin is definitely more spiritual than the Apostle Paul. Romans 7.14 Notice here that Paul states all of this in the present tense. This is at the time he is writing this letter of Romans. By the way, this is 20 years or more after he became a Christian. And he's saying this in the present tense. It's clear from this statement, uh, from this content, that Paul's not describing life before becoming a Christian. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing that which I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Now that means that Paul is no longer in conflict conflict with the law. He now loves the law. He used to be in conflict with it, but now he embraces the law. He knows that's a good tutor to lead people to grace. But he continues. Listen to this. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, and he says, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, he has the desire, but the doing for the good is not. For the good I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But I am doing the very thing I do not want. I am no longer doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Now listen to this key verse in the end. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Now I don't think that Paul's admitting that he's an axe murderer here. He has a magnified view of sin. He knows just how much that sin separates us from God. And what he's doing is he is describing this conflict that is going on inside of him, this conflict of his new spiritual life when he's been born again with the Holy Spirit, wanting to serve God, and the flesh inside that still wants to do what? Sin. Everyone's drawn to sin. Some yield more than others. But there are two natures in a Christian. And he knows evil's present with him. He says that he does practice some level of evil. And he doesn't like the fact that he does it. Yet he, at the same time, possesses this desire to do good. 
That means that Paul's born again at this point. Unbelievers that are void of the Holy Spirit, they don't want to do good. Well, I mean, they may give five bucks to a person on the street somewhere to make themselves feel good. But they don't have any good, as far as the Bible explains it, good wanting to please God. The unbeliever wants to please themselves. They don't think about ways and they can magnify God and and magnify the holiness of God and tell others about it. They want to please themselves. They're consumed with feeding their lusts. They're living in the domain of darkness, Colossians says. Unbelievers want more money. They want more success. They want more pleasure and prestige. I realize that we struggle with that as well. And in their hearts, they don't really care whether anybody comes to know God through Jesus Christ. That's not their goal in life. They really don't go out saying, no, I'd like to hand out a bunch of tracts today. I would like to witness. I would leave a tract for my wife. They're really not concerned. Unbelievers aren't concerned about people coming to know God and being saved from their sins. I know. I used to be one. So my point is here that any Christian who says, I no longer sin, John says, is lying. He says they're self-deceived. Meaning, you aren't fooling God. You aren't fooling us. You're fooling who? Yourself. That's the only person you're fooling. You're walking down this path of darkness. It says the truth isn't in you. No one in this church is going to buy, that you, buy the fact that you never sin. Um, scripture is abundantly clear that we will not be res- removed from the desire to sin. That compulsion to sin in our flesh even though we want to serve God with our spirit, we won't, that, the flesh won't be removed from us until we see Jesus face to face at glorification. By the way, this, this will be important in a few moments. Would this person who says, I have no sin, would they have any desire to confess? Would they want to go to confession? Would they want to do some kind of confession? No. They're identifying themselves as not sinners. So most people today don't buy into this Christian perfectionism. um, But we do run into plenty of people that don't view themselves as sinners. So for our application in this point today, there are a couple ways this will manifest itself in our day. Um, I once, this is one illustration, I once participated in an attempt at at counseling and restoring a woman. Uh, She claimed to be Christian. And and her character, uh, her conduct, had been habitually slanderous and defaming towards others. She'd been divisive towards her church, to the point there were many that were complaining to leadership. She was rude, actually quite arrogant. And in this session, I remember it, there were several of us in there. She looked at me straight in the eye and told me, I don't have a mean bone in my body. Really? Really? Not a mean bone in your body. Not even one. Wow. She had absolutely no self-awareness of what she had done. And, And she asserted, I have no sin. The only two scenarios that, that I can fathom here in this situation is she either knew she had sin and just would not admit it, or she had no spirit, indwelling spirit in her to convict her of what she'd done. I don't know which it is. Now, the other way that we see this manifest in our modern culture, in our modern day, 
is that the people will openly sin through behavior which is licentious. And then they claim God doesn't really have a problem with it. Most of the time, they, they do this by identifying their particular bent as being irrelevant to God. Under the dispensation of grace, they inc- incorrectly conclude this, God, does, God doesn't care. Doesn't matter. This, this is the posture of the liberal church. Doesn't matter. Their credo really is that nothing is sinful except not being true to yourself. They happily overlook things like premarital sex, drunkenness, homosexuality, cheating on taxes, you name it, etc. They're just like, it really doesn't matter. You're covered in grace. Don't worry about that stuff. Even if it were sin, which they usually wouldn't even admit, they say it's all covered by grace anyhow, so it doesn't really matter. So they would respond to the question poised in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Their answer would be, yeah. We have no sin to account for. We don't sin. We're not sinning in what we're doing. God's fine with it. And they and their friends conclude, we've got nothing to confess. Hmm. Well, their, their validation in that situation is achieved simply by dismissing the relevance of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. Um, concerning moral issues, they conclude, it, it, it doesn't matter in our day, and it certainly doesn't apply to me. And verse 8 says what? The truth is not in them. They're walking in darkness. The Word is not in them. So we find this 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 new characteristic of excuse me characteristic of walking in darkness and it is the suggestion i have nothing to confess who can say that let's now switch over and look briefly at what life looks like for those who are walking in the light now this would describe the lighted path that every born again christian follows and the narrow path that everyone who wants to go to heaven needs to be on. And as we return to verse 7, what do you think God will use on this narrow path that few people are on to light the way for his sheep? What is he going to use to illuminate it? Again, Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Word of God illuminates the Christian's path so that we can walk in the light. And verse 7 supplies two benefits of living by God's Word. It says if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from how many sins? All sins. So like uh, holding out a lantern, an old oil lamp, Holding out a lantern as we walk along, the Word of God is illuminating our steps as we walk. It is a light unto our path. One commentator that I read made much of the fact that that John doesn't use the, the Greek terminology that would have said we walk according to the light. If that terminology would have been used, it actually would have implied sinless perfection. We walk according to the light. 
Scripture's already handily dismissed that possibility. Only one person has ever walked this earth in a state of sinless perfection. And it isn't you. No, we walk in the light. Not according to the light. Walking in the light suggests a responsiveness to the light as you're walking. Let me ask you. When you take up the lamp of Scripture, when you hold it out in front of you, as you're walking in your daily life, do you readily respond to it? Do you sense in your heart a need to honor Jesus Christ by applying that biblical information? Do you have this nagging and compelling desire to light your steps as you walk in the light of God's Word? Do you want that? Do you desire that? If so, that's an indication of a regenerate heart. Christians are to anticipate that they will experience illumination, not sinless perfection. Our path will be illumined by God's Word. And for the person walking in the light, we find there are two benefits. First, it says in the text, we have fellowship with one another. Now, this is a declaration of fellowship between us and God. When we have fellowship with one another, it means us and Him, God and man. We have fellowship with God if we're walking in the light. Of course, when we do that, we have fellowship with one another too, don't we? And having fellowship means that you're one of his sheep. You're adopted into his family as one of his children. If you're walking in darkness, and you've taken that wrong fork in the road, you don't receive these family benefits. You you have no fellowship. You have no salvation. And and what is the second family benefit here? Look again at verse 7. The second one for those who are walking in the light. If you walk in the light, what? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. All sin. You can see the word if presents a condition here. And and this is exclusive. There's no cleansing by the blood of Jesus for those who are walking in the darkness. But there is ongoing cleansing for the Christian. That's why cleanses is written in the continuous. The cleansing goes on and on and on. Kind of like some of the new music that's coming out, Gerald. just goes on and on and on. But perpetual cleansing, that's the joy and the privilege of the Christian. That's because from the beginning of the church age, our fellowship has needed perpetual cleansing. Do you agree? We perpetually sin. We perpetually sin against one another. And, And it doesn't matter if you say, no, not me. I'm not the sinner. You're probably going to have to look across the street at the other church over there. Their sinner is over there. No. You are, I am, every single one of us is a sinner. And one of the gravest mistakes any Christian can make is to come to the conclusion that they no longer need the continuous cleansing of Christ. You need it your entire life. Because you sin your entire life. So sure, you're no longer probably knocking off banks. At least you're supposed to give that up at the point of conversion. Don't do that. Hopefully you're not going out every weekend getting drunk. Or are you? 
hope you're not doing that. Perhaps you're just gossiping behind others' back. Maybe you're complaining about the smell of the carpet. Um, Maybe you don't like how long the preacher preaches, and you're telling others about that. Maybe you don't like the color of the bulletin. Perhaps all you do is criticize under your breath the dresses that other women wear. Maybe you don't like the fact that someone else is pulled up in a car that's nicer than yours. Do you realize you need cleansing for all of that? You need cleansing all the time. So my question is this. Do you view yourself a sinner? I sure do. The light of God reveals to me every time that I sin, every time I open it, I'm a sinner. Every time I hear it preach, I'm thinking, boy, I'm a sinner. And you know what I do? I confess it. I say, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Do you see how this is the difference that we see between the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18? Yeah, the Pharisee viewed himself as righteous. While the tax collector cried out for forgiveness. Which one did Jesus say went to his house justified? Tax collector. Tax collector. And every day throughout my day, time to time, I confess to God. I see something that I do. I catch myself. Read the word. Hear someone preach on the radio. I'm like, man. Ooh, this is a difficult world, Lord, and I am a sinner. And I plead to God, thank him for that blood that continually cleanses me. Now in verse 9, it continues to describe uh, the behavior of those who walk in the path of the light. This is those, again, who belong to Jesus Christ. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. So Christian confession, it's not optional. Confessing who you are is not an option. We also must know that it is not a prescription. It's not a mechanism for achieving righteousness. That's the mistake that the Catholics make. All your sins are forgiven when you come to faith in Christ. Confession is our posture. It's our attitude which validates you're born again. It's that nagging urge inside of you to admit you're a sinner. And it verifies that you're walking in the light of God. He's illuminating your steps. And in fact, the term confess here, the Greek term homologeo, it doesn't mean to kneel next to a confession booth and to tell a priest what you have for sins. It doesn't even mean kneel next to your bed. Homologeo is a verb that actually means to concede. It literally means to say the same thing about sin as God does. It represents us coming into harmony with his perspective, that we align with him and say, Yep, Lord, your word is right. I'm a sinner. I'm wrong. Cleanse me. That is his perspective. The person who is self-righteous who says, I don't have any sin, they just go through their day justifying themselves. It's not me. It's my neighbor. He's not nice to me. The people at church aren't nice to me. I'm perfect. 
That's the difference, you see? MacArthur writes, Rather than focusing on confession for every single sin as being necessary, John has especially in mind here a settled recognition and acknowledgement that one is a sinner in need of continual cleansing and forgiveness. We think the same way about sin as God does. And that's exactly what we see with the tax collector. He has a settled recognition. He didn't go to the temple with his checklist. Um, I lusted at this woman. I, I lied to this man. I didn't return that pencil to my supervisor. I spoke rudely to that woman at the market. That didn't go so good. Um, no. Who could ever remember every sin? Every lustful and prideful thought? No. No one can do that. Every cross word that you've ever said? How about the sins of omission? He who knows the right thing to do and then does not do it, to him it is sin. You got all those cataloged? No. Don't kid yourself. Um, If your salvation depends, if this passage is saying which it isn't, if it's saying that you have to confess every single sin, you got reason to worry. I could never do that. But Christian confession is not maintaining an itemized list like Mary does with our banking and and she's a treasurer. And At the end of each month, she reconciles accounts, makes sure that every outgoing and ingoing receipt lines up and gets a balance. She reconciles accounts. And if you had to do that with God, I don't know how you'd ever reconcile that. In fact, if you're trying to do that, That means you're relying on yourself for salvation. That's works righteousness. You're saying it's up to me to make sure the job gets done. Truth is, Jesus got the job done on the cross. In fact, coming coming with a list, that's actually more like uh, more mirrors who at the Temple Mount. The Pharisee, right? The Pharisee came with their list. Tax collector just said, Lord, I am a sinner. Beat his breast. I certainly don't want to be misinterpreted here. I'm not saying that there aren't grave situations, particular sins, identifying them, that you need to acknowledge to God. Lord, that was really wrong what I did. Lord, you've got to help me overcome that because that was just downright evil. Certainly there's those situations. Do not give up on that. I'm also not saying that um, um, you shouldn't be confessing to others when you need to. It's not just a settled recognition but you don't, uh, that you are a sinner. There are situations, we find that from other scriptures, where you need to acknowledge to God and to people certain individual sins. What I am saying, your salvation doesn't depend on it. You were washed in the blood of the Lamb at the cross. When you put faith in Christ... You were forgiven. You were brought into God's family. Well, fortunately, the text says, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're a Christian, you don't have to always be walking around on eggshells. God is righteous, it says. That means he's judicially just. As a righteous judge, He can pardon your sins. He can do it every time. He can continually cleanse you every time you sin because he's already poured out the punishment for those sins on his own son at the cross. He's already handled it. 
He is just. He remains just. And verse 7 says, the blood of Jesus cleanses the Christian from all sin. Not some sin. Not certain sins. And verse 9 says, God cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You're not cleansed from some unrighteousness. When you're washed in the blood of the Lamb, you don't become 70% righteous. Then you've got to work on the other 30% as you go along. Pay for it possibly in purgatory or through repeated confession or by giving money to people. No, in Christ, you are identified as 100% righteous. He himself bore his sins, bore our sins in his body on the cross. So we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. We are living to righteousness. The lamp is guiding our way. And in Philippians 3, verse 8, Paul said, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived by the law, but that righteousness which is through faith in Christ. Always faith in Christ. That's where our righteousness comes. The righteousness, he continues, which comes from God on the basis of faith. Philippians chapter 3. There's no partial righteousness. You're either righteous or you're unrighteous. You're either perpetually cleansed or you're perpetually unclean. You either walk in the light of God's word or you are walking in darkness. You either have eternal life or you are dead in sin. Which road are you on? Let me ask you this. This is better. Which one do you want to be on? That's a no-brainer. I know which one I'm on. I've recognized my sinfulness. I've admitted my sinfulness. I've turned my life over to Christ. And I pray everyone in this room here has as well. It's the most liberating experience anyone can have. Um, Though a Christian recognizes sins, we we live uh, to strive for for the glory of Jesus Christ and live honorable to Him. We don't walk around with our head hung low. We're not always, oh, rats, I did it again. We acknowledge we're sinners. But how dreadful that would be. Instead of that, we fall down. We get dirty here and there. But God has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. So when you fall down and you're, you're robed with Christ's righteousness and you fall down into the dirt and you stand up, that robe is like Teflon on a frying pan to an egg. Dirt just slips right off. You are righteous in the eyes of God by what Christ did for you on the cross. It's not by what you do. If you're not a Christian, if you sense you're not a Christian, you need to make that decision today. Right here and now. You stand at a fork in the road, and Jesus Christ is there, and he's pointing you to the path of the light. You can acknowledge you're a sinner who needs a Savior and that Christ died on, your, on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead. You can acknowledge that. You can go down the path that is lighted with the rest of us. Or you can turn to the left and say, I'm not a sinner. Nope. Don't need it. Verse 10 says, 
If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So you can declare what you're doing is not sin. You can do that all you want. And in doing so, you're free to blaspheme God because you're calling him a liar. The truth is, you're the liar. His word's not in you. You'll continue to walk in the path of darkness. So there's no escaping this decision today. A failure to make a decision to follow Christ is your decision. You choose the path. The lighted path, the dark path. And, and you are, by the way, welcome to just walk on past Christ. I don't think that's a good idea. Go with him. Go with us. Join together with us down the path of the light. And as we walk along and as we stumble as a church, we're going to help pick each other back up. We're going to seek to be illumined by the word of God as we walk. We're going to forgive one another. It's not the easiest path. Some days that light shines brighter for some people than it does for others. There are are dark times in our lives. That's why he put us on this path together. So we can pick each other up and dust one another off. That is his church. You need to become part of it. Let's pray. Lord, we're so privileged to have your holy word to to show us your truth, Lord, to illumine our steps. Lord, as we struggle through this life, as we sin, as we fall down, Lord, like Paul, we don't like it. Lord, we do not like what we see in our behavior a lot of the time. Lord, we're so grateful that you've cleansed us. You've cleansed Christians, Lord God, with a perpetual cleansing. Lord, you've been so merciful, so kind and loving to put your son on the cross to bear the shame that we should have had. Lord, as we pray now, if there's anyone here who's considering this, which path they're on, Lord, we pray that you convict anyone who's on that dark path that they need to switch roads. Lord, that you would guide them to skip the tracks and go over on the road that leads to the light, Lord, the one that leads to Christ, to eternal life. So, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, we pray now that you would grant them salvation, that you would turn their heart on to the light. Lord, you'd regenerate them, that you'd make them a new creation, that the old would be gone and the new would come. Lord, help us as we help one another. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.